Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, October 21st. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be looking at the latest developments in Irish television and mulling the appointment of Philip Lane as the next governor of the Central Bank. And it is with the Central Bank that we will begin. I'm joined in studio by Arthur Beasley to ponder the appointment of the highly regarded Trinity College economist Philip Lane to succeed Patrick Honahan as Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. Uh, Arthur, how significant an appointment is this? Well, uh, I think it's significant for, for, for a number of reasons, Kieran. frankly. Uh, Philip Lane is 46 years of age. There's a genera- generational shift underway. The Patrick Honahan, of course, is 66 and exactly. took up the role six years ago, so he was in his 60s when he took it on. A- absolutely, and uh, you, you could cast Philip Lane as, as one of a number of other people in their now in their kind of mid to late 40s uh, who are you know in, in positions in, of, of high office in a, within the state. More importantly than that though I think uh, I mean the appointment is significant it's the outcome of the first open selection process for the central bank governorship and it seems to me it casts in stone uh, the notion that there will be you know, open competitions in the future and that the day of an automatic transfer of power in the central bank to a top civil servant who moves from Marion Street to Dame Street is now a okay, thing, uh, he thing will of the be, past. Sure, he will be the 11th governor of the central bank and the first nine were all uh, senior civil servants from the government, mostly from the Department of Finance. Patrick Honan wasn't, he was an academic, but he was installed as opposed to having, having to come through an interview process. That's right, he was the direct choice of the late Brian Lenehan. Uh, and that was the, at a time of deep crisis in Ireland, September 2009. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, unprecedented crisis and a time in which the, the credibility of the central bank really had crumbled. The, the central bank should be a pillar of state and the pillar crumbled. Uh, yes, there was an international global dimension to the problem, but really the banks here ran rampant and uh, it all ended in tears, as we know. And it was crucial at that point to bring an outsider in to the central bank to uh, put some order on things. Yeah, no, he was one of two candidates at the very final hurdle who was considered for this post, the other being Robert Watt, the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Um, and it would appear that yesterday there was uh, there was some heated debate at Cabinet with Brendan Howland making his pitch for his man. 
Um, well, I, I think it's it's clear at this point that Brendan Howland did um, urge the appointment of Robert Watt. But the fact is that the recommendation is in the gift of the Minister for Finance, mm. and that recommendation is then to be endorsed by the Cabinet. Uh, it seems pretty clear that the interview panel, composed of four very senior individuals, uh, that uh, Professor Lane was their choice, and that was the choice that mm. Michael Noonan went for at the end of the day. The Minister is on record as saying that uh, upwards of 100 people uh, were in the frame at the very outset of the contest. Noonan. Yes, that's right. And that, uh, you know, the initial shakeout would have had uh, 30 or 40 people and this uh, eventually came down to, then to uh, Philip Lane and Robert Watt. Right, OK. So uh, is there any potential for this to sour the relations between Michael Noonan and Brendan Howland? I mean, uh, Brendan Howland, I think, said after the Cabinet meeting that they wouldn't fall out over it. But obviously there's an election coming up in the next uh, number of months and they are... They are proposing to stand on a joint platform, economic platform, aren't they? Going well, there's the, the whole idea of the Noonan-Howland axis, if you like. The government believes this has been a great success. You had the division of the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure. Um, I don't see that uh, this has really potential to sunder what has been one of the f- fundamental relationships within the government. I think it's to be expected that the Minister for Public Enterprise would advocate in favour of his own Secretary-General. Uh, but at the end of the day, as I say, uh, it falls first to the finance minister. They had a very long process. Um, Philip Lane's uh, credentials are uh, just without doubt. He's a very, very uh, long track record in economics. He's highly respected uh, both here and abroad. Uh, And, you know, he has a a role in the uh, European Systemic Risk Board, which has overlapping responsibilities with the governing council of the European Central Bank, which he will be joining once uh, his appointment is made by Michael D. Higgins, the president. He certainly seems to have an extensive CV, Philip Lane. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, he is a graduate uh, from Trinity College. He graduated in 1991 in economics, won the gold medal at that time for the top-ranked student in economics. But that was only the first of many garlands. His PhD is from Harvard University. Very soon uh, thereafter, he became an associate professor at Columbia University. He has been head of the economics department in Trinity College for 12 years and uh, has, since 2012, held the Watley chair in... uh, in political economy, which is a very prestigious chair. But, I mean, it doesn't really stop there. And, you know, the citations in the the economic literature, in academic literature, uh, are certainly very numerous. Uh, He is an external examiner for, or an external uh, PhD examiner for the likes of Cambridge University, the London School of Economics. And, uh, really, this is someone whose uh, output over the years uh, in the world of economics is is certainly prodigious. And he was chosen for a European post as well, wasn't he, by ECB President Mario Draghi? This is right. That's right. He is the he uh, was chosen to be uh, chairman of the technical group which advises the European Systemic Risk Board. Now you ask, what is the European Systemic Risk Board? Essentially, it's uh, it falls within the architecture of the European Central Bank, and its job is to look at risks to the financial system as a whole. 
in in general, financial regulation looks at uh, banks on an institution by institution basis. But it was recognised uh, in the midst of the financial crisis after the crash that there was a need for uh, people to stand back and to take look take a look at systemic issues. In other words, that you wouldn't have institutions which were too big to fail because they would contaminate the uh, the wider economic system. And uh, therefore, you had the uh, introduction of this body known as the European Systemic Risk Board. It has a number of branches. One of those is this technical advisory group, and Philip Lane has been chairman since March. Okay. Now, when Patrick Conahan took over in September 2009, his role, his job was very much to stem the bleed that was going on in the Irish banking sector at the time and to try and restore credibility and to try to ensure that the Irish banks didn't collapse completely because they were teetering uh, on the edge, I think it's fair to say, at that time. No doubt about that. What's the challenge facing Philip Lane? Well, I think uh, I think the challenge is to uh, to manage a, a, a transition from the firefight, the constant firefight of crisis, to more normal times in a scenario where the central bank as an institution has greatly enlarged with a huge number of new responsibilities. I mean, there's a the, there is the dimension of a more intensive bank supervision, which locks into a European system of bank supervision. There is the aspect of consumer protection. Uh, something which was in the uh, which was in the uh, within the responsibility of the, of the central bank all along. Uh, there's the whole element of bedding down the new uh, mortgage cap restrictions, which are designed to prevent any return to runaway bank lending. But then there's a whole other part of its work, which is essentially unseen, and that is the regulation of financial entities in the IFSC and indeed the regulation of numerous insurance companies. Now, I think uh, speaking to people in in government circles, I think there has been a, se- a sense in recent times that although the, the quality of the decisions made by the central bank is not in question, there uh, are some concerns at the level of the financial services industry that the pace of decision making is simply too slow and does not befit uh, a kind of a globalised uh, financial system in which you have large organisations which expect to get decisions quickly from their regulators. And that, it seems to me, has been a problem. So I think there's a, a general sense that the central bank at this time is in need of tighter management. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that. That's pr- perhaps one of the criticisms of Patrick Honahan's time as governor is that some of the structural changes, some of the modernisation that needed to take place in the central bank really haven't been put into effect. But also there's a resourcing issue that they seem to have uh, flagged in the past year or so. I mean, we've heard, for example, in certain supervisory tasks that they simply don't have the staff on hand to complete the work that's necessary. I mean, for example, uh, in the insurance sector. Uh, That is true. And, uh, you know, there's a whole question of uh, caps on wages and all the rest of it. And but, uh, you know, I mean, the I suppose the the situation has changed. You had what you had was a central bank which was trying to manage the way out of a crash. The crash is now over. We are now in the post-crisis phase, so they really need to kind of figure out uh, what the priorities are and go at them directly. Yeah, maybe let's just talk about the Honahan years for a couple of moments. What were the notable successes of Patrick Honahan's time as governor? 
I think ultimately at the end of the day that you know he, he became uh, seen as uh, to coin a you know to, to borrow an expression uh, coined by I think it was Colin McCarthy in a famous uh, a article in the Vanity Fair magazine that he became known as the guy in charge of the money at the time of the crash the public had no idea who was in charge of the money and I think it was pretty clear that no one was in charge so I think he had a certain uh, authority and credibility to an institution which had uh, essentially lost its way and uh, had been proved to have been essentially asleep at the switch because by the time of the uh, you know huge interventions to prop up the banking system, it was already too late. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, you've written yourself how his own time at the bank was bookended by the famous interven- inter- intervention mm-hmm. at the time of the uh, EU IMF bailout. The government was in outright denial. Michael or Patrick Honahan made his uh, famous phone call to the Morning Ireland show and, and uh, reflected the fact that a uh, a bailout was on the way. Now, I think the government was greatly antagonised at that time. It was indeed. And there was a suggestion at the Oireachtas Banking Inquiry earlier this year that perhaps he was doing the bidding of the ECB rather than doing it in the interest of the Irish public. What's your view? Well, I, I think the backdrop here is that, uh, you know, you had a situation of denial in Dublin and uh, this was uh, being reflected on the balance sheets of the banks and the Irish banks the, mo- the day before the uh, famous interview on, on Morning Ireland, uh, an ad hoc interview interview, which uh, I don't think anyone in Morning Ireland expected as they went on the air that morning at seven o'clock, the Irish banks had suffered their single biggest loss of deposits in a day. And this was against the backdrop of huge deposit seepage uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the run-up to the bank guarantee and uh, during the two years that followed it. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, as we said, the, gov- the, gov- the government was in, was in denial, and yet it seems to me that uh, you know uh, the 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 expectation out there amongst people was that uh, you know something was on the way, and it's my understanding that the uh, negotiation was well advanced at that point. Yeah, indeed. And I suppose the other notable aspect of his governorship, if you like, the one that's impacting on people's everyday lives, certainly if you want to buy a property, are these new mortgage rules that came into effect at the beginning of this year. They've capped the amount that people can borrow in terms of loan to value and in terms of uh, income ratios as well. And it's really made it very difficult for people, particularly in Dublin, um, to buy a home. Um, that is right. I think that particular initiative is seen as, if you like, uh, is seen as Honohan's legacy for the future, right? If you, if you, I mean, if, if everything, or if most of what he did in in the in his years in charge of the bank was to steady the ship. Uh, this, I think, is seen as something which is uh, supposed to make sure that we never, ever return to uh, the kind of mistakes and malpractice that led to the crash. However, it is the case that this does lead to problems at the level of people who are saving to buy a home. And the shortage of supply in the market at the moment is such mm. that those people who now have to save for much larger deposits to buy a home... Uh, in a scenario where at a particular point we had 100% mortgages, those people have to pay extraordinarily high rents as well. Um, now, the answer to that, uh, the answer to the, that criticism is that, look, at this is not a problem around the supply of lending. This is a problem around the supply of homes and it's not the, the job of the central bank to uh, to manage the market so that there is an increased supply of homes. That's a different end of the market. Now, of course, when they ran their consultation process for the new rules, the Department of Finance argued for a more nuanced uh, approach 
And they've continued to argue for, for that since then. I mean, uh, in an interview in the Irish Times with, with your good self, Michael Noonan, uh, last month, Michael Noonan uh, pressed for uh, a review of the mortgage rules by the central bank. But it would seem they're not for turning on. Presumably, Philip Lane is going to have to uh, stave off this pressure as well. Well, I mean, the the, uh, the public call from the minister was one which was uh, very public indeed in, 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 a, in an interview in the newspaper. I think uh, the central bank uh, is not... Uh, not minded at this point to change. I think there is a view that, look at, the new regime is only in place for a matter of months. Uh, it's simply too early to uh, gauge properly how it is functioning and to come to a, a deep assessment as to whether, a, as to what might be done to improve the system. The irony here, of course, is that the very man now who uh, recommended his nomination as central bank governor is the man who is going to uh, go have to go back to the minister with the outcome. Now, I mean, by the, by the same token, I think we could also say, I mean, it's, we're not in a situation in which the central bank is going to initiate uh, a review of the system in its own right as a result of the minister's request for such a review. I think the view is, look at this thing, is under constant review and constant scrutiny. And I think the uh, results at this point Point to uh, a, 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 a less pressure on prices uh, in Dublin, and indeed, I think we're seeing a bit of that now in other parts of the state. Right. Okay. There's going to have to be some other senior appointments at Central Bank. A couple of people moving on. Uh, John Coyle is one. Uh, Stephen Garlick, the deputy governor, is another. Any sense of uh, what's going to happen there? Well, I mean, Stephen Garlick is, is one of two deputy governors, the other being uh, Cyril Roux. Um, uh, he uh, declared a couple of weeks ago that he uh, that he would be leaving. The post was advertised um, uh, last Friday. I'd expect them to uh, move ahead with that uh, pretty quickly. Uh, what are they looking for? I don't know. Maybe they're looking for some kind of a person uh, who will uh, a kind of take take upon themselves to uh, take on this particular management task. Um, you know, I think that's a task that uh, ultimately falls over to the new governor. And do we know precisely when Philip Lane is going to take up his role? Um, I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. The appointment uh, is to be officially made by Michael D. Higgins. He is out of the country at the moment. However, the uh, Michael Noonan uh, made a point of uh, making clear yesterday that uh, Philip Lane is going to join the Central Bank Commission, which oversees the bank uh, pretty much immediately, and that means that he'd be able to uh, participate in bank meetings and indeed in meetings of the European Central Bank because he is going to be Ireland's member of the ECB Governing Council. Okay, Arthur Beasley, thanks for joining us. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014.
We'll move now to Irish television and the announcements this week that ITV has bid £100 million for Belfast-based UTV and that RTE's Director-General Noel Curran will depart Montrose next May, two years before schedule. Joining me in studio to consider these matters is Laura Slattery, who writes a weekly media column in the Irish Times. Laura, we might just start with uh, UTV. I suppose this ITV deal has been in the pipeline. It's been rumoured anyway for, uh, for some time and now we have the details. What's it going to mean for UTV? Well, for UTV, the Belfast company that we know as UTV Media, um, it will become simply just a radio company with some digital media interests. So it's basically everything except TV. That's what's going to be left with the company up in Belfast. And it will have to change its name because ITV has also bought the UTV brand. So ITV is now going to own UTV uh, up in the north. And UTV Ireland in the south. UTV Ireland uh, in the Republic. Okay. Um why is UTV getting out of television? Why are the people behind UTV getting out of television? Well, in a way, it's been a little bit doubtful in, in recent years whether or not it has been committed to television. Um, you know, Ulster Television is a historic name. You know, it's been on air since 1959. But in recent years, it has become, you know, less important to it from revenue point of view. Talk sport was usually the biggest uh, driver of revenues and profits at the group. So what was surprising, in fact, was that it launched this second channel uh, there at the start of the year. The announcement that came in late 2013 was the surprise rather than this being the surprise. And obviously the losses that, that new station in Dublin has racked up since um, it was set up has probably made it what more appealing for UTV Media to sell. How much did it lost? Um, well, I think it's on track to lose 11.5 million sterling this year, and what was uh, the initial guidance? I think the initial guidance was something more like three million, or it's 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 certainly multiple of the original, and that's actually really the issue because you would expect there to be losses in the uh, first year of an operation, but the problem is that it, it did um, get its figures wrong. I, I think commercially, yeah. it's been a flop. Yeah, I mean, it got its audience numbers wrong and its advertising targets wrong. Okay, does it have a future under ITV's ownership? Well, if you talk to you know ITV, you know to this week. They will say that they're committed to it, but we just don't know. You know, we won't know until the deal goes through. And a lot of people in the industry are predicting that it will effectively shut it down by turning, you know, it into an opt-out channel, meaning it will sell advertising off the back of pretty much the same schedule that they have in the north, which would have consequences for the um, uh, something like 106 people who are employed in Dublin. Laura, what will this mean for TV3? Because some of the programmes that appear on ITV actually appear on TV3, not on UTV Ireland, for example, Downton Abbey. Right, yeah, because TV3 has separate deals in place with the distributors of certain programmes that we would know as ITV programmes but are, in fact, you know, distributed by other companies. So that includes Downton Abbey, which is uh, distributed by Carnival, I think. And, you know, that's coming to an end anyway, so that's maybe not a huge one. But something like a drama like Broadchurch as well is, is not distributed by ITV. And um, the Simon Cowell programs. Simon Cowell programs are distributed by Fremantle. So TV3 already had deals in place with those distributors. And the deal that UTV Ireland had for the Republic is different than the one that UTV has in the North. The deal that UTV Ireland has is with ITV Studios. So it's just the programmes distributed by ITV Studios that it has the rights to. OK, I suppose we should explain the, the background to how UTV and, and ITV um, coexisted. I, ITV is effectively an amalgam of uh, most, if not all, of the regional franchises, independent television franchises uh, in Britain. UTV was an outlier uh, in the sense that it had the, the franchise for Northern Ireland and it never participated 
um, as part of the ITV group? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were, you know, more than a dozen franchises to start with. There was many different ones and there was different iterations and um, different, uh, you know, uh, franchises over the years since the mid-50s when ITV, what, what we now know as ITV, was, was set up. So before the deal this week, ITV PLC had amalgamated 12 of the 15 franchises and now it has 13 and there's two that are owned by STV up in Scotland that remain separate. But these were once all separate companies with names like Granada and Carlton, London Weekend Television. So, you know, they, 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 they each held what's known as the Channel 3 licence in the UK and, and UTV Media held that for Northern Ireland, mm, um, okay. but, but no longer. Interesting that they're going to keep the UTV name. It suggests they're going to have a separate brand here still. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, um, you know, there is there is a contractual um, obligation on them in Northern Ireland to produce a certain amount of local programming. And, I, you know, I understand that's going to continue. But, of course, the same um, contractual uh, obligations don't apply um, to UTV Ireland. OK, and, and UTV, as it is now, is going to become, it's going to just be a radio and, and digital business. It's going to have a different name. It's going to continue to be based in Belfast? Yeah, it will be. It will, I presume, continue to be based in Belfast. But that's actually a really good question because, um, as part of the agreement, Havelock House, which is its home in Belfast on the Ormo Road, there, it's a big pink building. Um, that's going to transfer ownership to ITV, and those parts that aren't going with ITV, you know, they have the right to stay on site for about a year. But after that, who knows? Because, as I said, Talksport is the biggest revenue driver. So, who knows what will happen to the company after that? Right, OK, well, let's move to RTE now. And this news that Noel Kern is going to step down next May. It's two years earlier um, than planned, as it were. Uh, he informed staff yesterday. Any sense of uh, why he's decided to take his leave of RTE well, so early? Um, in the statement we got from RTE yesterday, uh, Noel Kern said he felt that the time was right to move on. And He's been five years in the role. And it's been a tough five years, I guess, after the crash. I mean, it's been extremely tough uh, five years. I mean, his contract was due to run until 2018, but... Um, you know, in, in a way, this isn't, surpri- this isn't surprising. When he was appointed in late 2010, um, you know, it was already apparent that things were going a little bit wrong on the commercial scene. 2009 had been horrendous from an advertising revenue point of view. But even in late 2010, he probably couldn't have imagined that it was the deficit was going to balloon to the extent that it did. Um, well, so I see from your story today, actually, in the Irish Times, you say, um, or he says, rather, uh, I joined in February 2011. In my very first day in the job, I was told that the forecast for the year was minus 30 million euros, so and, a loss of 30 million euros. I mean, and it ended up much bigger than that again. But that, you know, but yeah, initially, I think he thought it was going to be six million, that, uh, you know, a few months earlier. You know, within the space of a few months, the, the forecast went from a deficit of six million to a deficit of 30 million. And, you know, in fact, there were four years where RTE recorded deficits. And um, I think Noel Curran's, I mean, in a way, it's a shame to say that his main achievement is to uh, slash the operating costs at RTE because there's obviously much, you know, many more things that he did apart from that. Um, but, you know, he got it back onto a place where it, it, it broke even in 2013 and 2014. So, you know, that that's quite a big cha- fundamental change in how RTE operates. Yeah. Um, any sense of who the runners and riders are? Who's, who's likely to succeed him? 
Well, I've named a few people in the newspaper, but I've mainly drawn them from the current executive board of, of, of mm. RTE. I think the favourite has to be Kevin Backhurst. He's the Deputy Director General. He's also the Director of News and Current Affairs. He came in in 2012 um, as as Director of News and Current Affairs. He's an Englishman. He's ex-BBC. That's right. He was head of the BBC News Channel. Um, uh, he was head of the BBC News Channel, which under his uh, reign was uh, was uh, just a, a very good channel. It's been it's suffering a little bit lately through budget cuts, I think. Um, so he had very good pedigree, and you know, I think I think my belief is that he has restored faith to Ortiz News Department. I know that people might have uh, different opinions on that. Um, he's, as I said, been he's been acting as well as as Deputy Director General. He's a pretty good communicator. He often represents Ortiz uh, elsewhere. Um, you also have to look at a couple of other people. Glenn Clan is the managing director of television, and um, it's traditional in a way for the managing director of television to uh, become director general, just because it is RTE's biggest division and it's most important commercially. Um, so he's in their name. Um, there's never been a female uh, director general of the uh, of RTE. Um, there's been ten men so far. And um, I think if you have to look at the executive board, you would say that Myrna Laffin, who is director of RTE Digital, um, you know, must have a lot of relevant experience, I think, because um, RTE is only, you know, going to become more digital in the future. Um, and what about outsiders? What about maybe David McRedmond, TV3 chief well, executive? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've mentioned David. Um, he is, as I say, he's been uh, chief executive of TV3 for nine years now. And, you know, he's kept the show on the road there through some very difficult times. You know, TV3 suffered the same recession that RTE did, but without the help of the licence fee. And, you know, it got it, got it through some very dark days to a position where it's now got new owners, um, Liberty Global, and you know, maybe maybe there is a, a sense that maybe the, the job is done. I, d- I don't know. I don't know. But um, yeah, he's definitely, I think, the most obvious external Would it be contender. Would be beyond the pale for Montrose to appoint somebody from Ballymount to the top job. Well, I don't know. I mean, perhaps it is. But I mean, if you look at what happened in the BBC actually um, last time, um, you know, they point, they appointed a guy who was ex BBC. He, he, you know, he had been director of news there. But he'd left, you know, in 2001 and was currently employed as the uh, as the chief executive of the Royal Opera House. This is Tony Hall, who's, you know, who came in now is the current director general over there. So it's not, you know, beyond the bounds of possibility that somebody who maybe was associated with RTE in the past could make a comeback. And just to sort of um, tie these two stories together, um, ITV, as the owner of, of UTV Ireland or the future owner of UTV Ireland and assuming it does um, continue you know, to to to, to court this market is it going to be a, a, a very formidable um, competitor to RTE, or would be under that scenario, um, especially for things like sports rights and so on. So these are all, you know, it's a tough competitive market, and it's only going to become more so in the years ahead. And the next director general of RTE is going to have to deal with that. Yeah, of course. I I, I think um, John Malone, who owns Liberty Global, uh, also controls Eurosport, uh, stick with me here, um, through, mm-hmm. uh, through another company. And Eurosport has uh, the rights for the Olympics um, going forward for Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's all change on the sports rights front. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of maybe some uh, people weren't too happy with uh, TV3's rugby coverage. I didn't have any complaints myself, but I know some, some people sort of noticed the difference between that and RTE. 
Um, and it's only going to happen more often in the future. Public service broadcasting is going to lose its grasp on sports rights. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't find a way to combat these massive uh, uh, commercial companies that it's competing with, one option for it would be to get closer to BBC uh, in, in joint bids for rights. Um, because you can find sometimes that the UK and Ireland rights are sold together and then maybe sub-licensed. Licensed. Um, but yeah, uh, so TV3 is owned, as I say, by a massive company now and UTV Ireland, if it continues, is owned by um, ITV, which is, which is, which is uh, uh, you know, small. And in fact, Liberty Global have a stake in ITV. So all of these companies are actually quite closely related to all of the commercial yeah, yeah, competitors. Sure. Now, one of the names you didn't mention was Steve Carson, um, who's married yeah. to a very famous uh, female presenter on RTE and who's uh, formerly of the RTE parish himself. Yeah, actually, you know, I, we, I was thinking about Steve yesterday. Um, yeah, Steve is, is director of production up in BBC Northern Ireland, so and he was director of programmes at RTE, so perhaps perhaps he might be interested, I, I don't know. Any sense when the appointment will be made? Um, I imagine it'll be uh, next year. I imagine it'll, the process will take a few months. The, you know, the RTE board will kick it off, and um, eventually the decision is approved by the minister. don't know who the minister is because there's an election coming. Yeah, sure. OK, Doris Lowry, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Arthur Beasley and Laura Slattery. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 